0: And we will read together verses 14 through 24. John chapter 7. When it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself... "...seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man." If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray together. Our God, we do come to your word and it is our desire not only that we would understand it, but that in understanding it that our hearts might be conformed to the image of Christ and transformed by your grace so that you might give us the strength to obey your word. We beseech You for that grace and for that strength to do according to what Your Word tells us. Help us to see in this passage of Scripture our Savior. Show us our Redeemer and help us to explain how great a Redeemer it is that we have. How glorious and how awesome and how wonderful. And Father, teach us of Yourself and of Your Word. And through Your Word we pray that You would do this by Your Spirit, for the glory of Your name and in the power of the Spirit we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you have probably all heard. I'm sure all of us have re- repeated or recited that little childhood ditty that goes something like this: "Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words—oh, you've said that too, have you? Words will never hurt me." Right? Uh, if you were a child, which you were—if you're not now—you were a child. You probably said that on the playground on more than one occasion, and your parents probably told you that little ditty: the "Sticks, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me." And as a child, you probably tried your best to convince yourself that that was true at some point, right? Walking around after somebody said some slanderous thing against you or called you a name or, or teased you for something and you would recite to yourself as I did because my mother and my grandmother always told me, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. That is about the stupidest statement, I think, that could ever fall from the lips of any human being because you and I know that sticks and stones can draw blood and break bones, but words can do lasting damage and damage that is far greater than than any stick or stone could ever do. And as much as you and I might try and convince ourselves that slanderous accusations and false accusations and name-calling and words cannot hurt us, the truth is, and we know that they do hurt us. And sometimes the hurt from a word or a name or something that somebody says can be more lasting, more deep, and more profound, and more long-lasting than any blow from a rock or a stick. And I don't know about you, but there have been times when I have had things said to me or said about me that, quite frankly, if I had my druthers, I would have rather taken a beating by a stick than had to have heard that tongue lashing or that thing that was said about me. Are all of us in that same boat? We all know that sticks and stones, though they can break our bones, words do hurt, and they do hurt very much. Scripture is honest about the power of the tongue and about the power of words and slanderous words, accusations. Uh, James chapter 3, the familiar passage that speaks about the power of the tongue, says not many of you should become teachers knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. And why the stricter judgment? Because if any man errs, he will err in what he says in his tongue. And it's just as possible for a, those who teach the word to err in the tongue and with the tongue and to say wrong things or to misrepresent truth as it is for somebody who is not a teacher to likewise use the tongue for ill purposes. And James gives an example of that. James chapter 3. He says, uh, look at a forest fire and how much, how, what does it, what does it take to get a forest fire going? Just a spark, right? We sing that little song around the campfire. And it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And pretty soon you have a forest fire. That's the idea of that. It only takes a little fire, a little flame to set on fire an entire forest. So it is with the tongue. This little tiny member of my body can do more harm and cause more iniquity than any other member of my body can do. The the tongue is so set among our members as to defile the whole body, because it is, James says, a world of iniquity. With it, we bless God and we curse men. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27 says, A worthless man digs up evil, while his words are like a scorching fire. It is a worthless man who uses his mouth to accomplish evil and uses his words like a scorching fire. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There is a right use and a wrong use for words. Now, you may be sitting here saying, Well, you know, I have never, ever in my life had a false accusation brought against me. Now, you have. You may just not be aware of it, but you have. Everybody has had false accusations brought against them. You've been called names. You've had said thing, things said to you and about you which are harmful and hurtful. But let me assure you of this, as much as you and I might protest false accusations or slanderous words said against us or about us, there has never been born of a woman a man more unworthy of slanderous words and accusations than the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you were to call me a woman, there is probably no accusation that does not have some nugget of truth buried somewhere in there that finds its seed somewhere in my corrupt human nature. So unless you were to call me a woman, I have been called that by people. Unless you were to call me a woman, there is some element of almost every accusation that is in some way true of this fallen human being. But that could never be said of the Lord Jesus. There was nobody who was more ill-deserving of slander and accusations than Jesus. And there was nobody who received accusations and slander more vile than that which was aimed at the Lord Jesus. And we get an example of that. In John chapter 7, when the crowd, in responding to his charge in verse 19, says to him in verse 20, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. That's their question and their charge. You have a demon. Now in John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in the temple, so this is a very public place. There are students or people who are disciples, followers, learners, who have gathered around him. The Jews are there, that is those Pharisees who have accused Jesus and continue to accuse Jesus, who are hostile to him. They have gathered around. This is in the middle of a feast the most public place available, and the most public forum available right in the temple, and this was the accusation they raised against him. They had started off by sort of insinuating that he was seeking his own glory and teaching from his own authority because he didn't didn't graduate from one of their accredited institutions. He, wasn't, he didn't get his education from any of the schools in Jerusalem. The implication being, since he speaks of his own authority and he's teaching things for his own sake, you ought not to listen to him. That was the implication. Jesus answered that and turned the tables back on him and questioned their qualifications for being good listeners. It's because they were not good listeners, their heart was not obedient, that they could not tell whether what he was teaching was true or not. And then he affirmed that he was not speaking of his own authority, and the evidence of that was the fact that he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. And the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him does not, in fact, speak for his own sake or for his own glory. Now that brings us up to verse 19, where Jesus then turns the tables again on them and levels a charge against them which was very true of them. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Now that was a true charge. Ironically, it was the violation of the law was the very thing that they had accused him of. And that's the issue that he addresses later on in, in verses 21 and following down to verse 24. His supposed violation of the law. They had accused him of violating the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath. This goes all the way back to chapter 5, when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And they accused him of doing an act or a work that was a violation of the Sabbath law. And in fact, it was not. And he answers that later on. But they had accused him of breaking the fourth commandment. That was the issue. He turns the tables on them and demonstrates they were violating. As they stood there accusing him, they were violating the sixth commandment. Moses gave you the law and you haven't kept the law. And they might have said, what, what law have we broken? You have broken the sixth commandment. Why do you seek to kill me? Their intention to kill him was in fact a violation of the sixth commandment. You don't have to murder somebody physically and literally take away their life to be a violator of the sixth commandment. All you have to do is hate somebody in your heart. To plan murder, to plot murder, to desire murder is to violate that commandment. And they stood in violation of that commandment because they had intended to kill him. Everybody knew that. Jesus knew that. They knew that. Why do you intend to kill me? They were guilty of breaking the sixth commandment while they were charging him of breaking the fourth commandment. He's turned the tables on them and accused them of something that was in fact true of them while they were accusing him of something that was not true of him. Now this is not just the pot calling the kettle black. This is not one lawbreaker pointing fingers at another lawbreaker and saying, well, you're accusing me of breaking law, but look at what you have done. Your children do that all the time, right? Well, you may have done this, but I, or I may have done this, but yeah, I did this. Or why did you, why are you crying? Because he pushed me. Why did you push me? Because he was in the way. Why was he in the way? Because she was in the way first. And back and forth it goes. That's not the type of thing that's going on here. Jesus had not violated the law. He was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent. And they could in no way point any finger at him and say, you have violated Sabbath law. He had not violated the Sabbath law. He answers that later on in the passage. What had he violated? All of their Sabbath traditions. All of the garbage and all of the stuff that was added on by which they nullified the law of God. Jesus had walked right over all of that for the purpose of demonstrating that he was equal with the Father and he could work on the Sabbath if he wanted to. He didn't violate the Sabbath. He violated their Sabbath traditions. And they've accused him of violating the Sabbath. So the tables are turned. Now they are under the spotlight. They've accused him of violating the law. He has put it right back onto them. You violated the law. You have accused me of violating the fourth commandment. I have actually, and I'm accusing you now truthfully of violating the sixth commandment because you are intending to kill me. Now look at their response. Their response, you have a demon. Who is it that seeks to kill you? Now the charge that they were violators of the law was a legitimate one. In fact, that that is true of everybody in this room, is it not? All of us have received the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given, that was the, that law and all of the law of God was the, the perfect expression of his moral character, his moral purity and his righteousness and his holiness. And that law, all of us in this room have failed to keep. And we, if we are honest, have to confess, I am a lawbreaker. I have broken every element of God's law. From the moment I was able to know right from wrong, I found within me a principle of sin where I did not do what was required of me. And in fact, I loved darkness so much that I actually wanted to do the very thing that I was prohibited from doing. So when the law of God says, thou shalt not covet, we want to covet. When the law of God says, thou shalt not do this, we desire to do that because we love darkness. And that's the condemnation in Romans chapter 3. That's what the first three chapters of the book of Romans are all about. The Jews and the Gentiles are both condemned. Jews, because they have received the law of God and failed to measure up to it, And Gentiles, because although they have not received the law of God in a written form, they have the law of God written on their hearts, their conscience bears witness against them. They know right from wrong and they still do what is wrong and they have not lived up to the revelation of God which was revealed in both conscience and in creation. The invisible things of God are clearly seen. Man does not live up to that light. And then the the law of God written on our hearts where we have a conscience, we know what is right and wrong. Even before we come to Christ, we know what is right and wrong. And we fail to do the right, and we desire to do the wrong, and we are condemned for it. So that Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And Jesus, of course, is the only exception to that rule. That all men are under sin. He, being born of a woman, virgin born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, did not... Inhabit the fall, uh, inherit the fallen nature of Adam, and he was not a sinner, but he's charged them with being guilty of violating the law. Now listen, that would not have been their assessment of themselves. That was not their self-assessment. The Jews did not view themselves as sinners, as lawbreakers in need of salvation. If they had had a right view of the law which Paul gives in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. If they had looked at the law and had the right view of the law and a right understanding of the law, they would have said, I am guilty, 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 and guilty on all ten accounts of the Ten Commandments. And beyond that, I have violated every other precept of the law, and I fail to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have violated every bit of the law because in breaking one point, I have broken all of them, and I'm guilty of the entire law. So the entire law of God and the wrath of God condemns me for my sin. I need a Savior. That should have been their response. They should have listened to what Jesus said and then said to him, you're right, we're guilty, we need a Savior, save us. If they had had a right view of the law, but they didn't. Instead, the Jews had perverted the meaning of the law and the intention of the law and were using it as a means of acquiring righteousness that would make them acceptable in the eyes of God. Just like Paul... Saul of Tarsus confesses in Philippians chapter 3, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. I kept the law as pertains to the, to, to zeal. I was a Pharisee. I persecuted the church when it came to the, the requirements of the law. As a Pharisee, I was found blameless. I kept all of it. And Paul says, all of those things that I did, I thought was accumulating for me a pile of righteousness. All of those in my righteousness column marks. Check, 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 check. I've done this. And they viewed the law as something that they would do to fulfill to heap up righteousness for themselves, to show to God and to others just how good they really were. That was Paul's view as a Pharisee. That was a typical Jewish view. The law is given so that I can measure up to the standard of righteousness. Instead of understanding the law was given to show me I can't measure up to any standard of righteousness. That's why Paul in Philippians 3 says, I realized that I needed a righteousness which is not my own. Not a righteousness which is derived from the law by my works, but a righteousness which comes by faith in Jesus Christ, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. And every Jew there should have known, I am unrighteous. But instead they said, I am righteous. And here are all my law-keeping abilities to do that. They didn't see themselves in terms of being unrighteous sinners in need of salvation. They saw themselves as being righteous individuals, with whom God should be pleased because they had measured up to his standards of moralism and outward perfection, and outwardly they kept the law. And Jesus' assessment is, you violated the law by breaking the sixth commandment, you're trying to kill me, and their response, you have a demon. You have a demon. That is a charge that Jesus was not only insane, but demon-possessed and the evidence of his demon possession was his was his irrational paranoia. An irrational paranoia. Somebody's trying to kill me. You are trying to kill me. And they deny it. And they, they, they deny it by saying, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. And all they're doing is shifting blame. There's a, a group of commentators, J.C. Ryle. I read this in J.C. Ryle's commentary. He says that the crowd here really is expressing their own ignorance of the Jews' plot to kill Jesus. This is the crowd saying, whoa, whoa you, you must be demon-possessed. Who is it that seeks to kill you? Seriously, you're that irrationally paranoid? By the way, is there, is there any such thing as rational paranoia? There's not rational paranoia. If it's rational, it's not paranoid. It's, it's truth, right? Somebody's trying to kill me, and I believe that. I'm not paranoid. That's truth. But it's only irrational, it's only paranoid if it, or paranoia if it's irrational or if it's, if it's not true, and that's their charge. It's not true. Who seeks to kill you? Do you think the crowd was really ignorant of the Jews' plot to kill Jesus, or is, are they denying something he's charged them with? Look, I don't think that this is the Jews just simply saying, really, who is it? We're unaware of any plot to kill you. Because Jesus said, you seek to kill me. Do you see that in verse 19? He had already charged that that's what they were trying to do. This is not a group of people who is ignorant of the devices of the leaders. This is a group of people who, among them, were the leaders who was denying it. No, us? Are you crazy? Such a thought would never enter into our minds. Not Not us. You must be demon-possessed. You're paranoid, thinking everybody's out to get you. You're like one of those people who watches a football game and thinks every time the team huddles, they're talking about you. You're irrational. And in their minds, such paranoia, such such irrationality of thinking that somebody was out to get you, somebody was out to kill you, was an evidence of demon-possession. It was the demon-possessed who walked around fearful all the time, skittish, thinking everybody's out to get them. There's some conspiracy against them. And so they say, you've got a demon. You're demon-possessed. Who is it that seeks to kill you? That is a a grave accusation, if you think about it. Of all the people who have ever been born of a woman, he was the one person who was not only not demon-possessed, but not even susceptible to demon possession. It was completely impossible for him to even fit this condition that they've described. Because he was possessed of the Holy Spirit. And he is God in human flesh and he is the full divine son who eternally existed, and he is the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form, it was completely impossible for such a one to be indwelt by the prince of darkness. This, he, he is the only person who has ever lived to whom demon possession, he was not even susceptible to it. It's not even, not even possible for him to be demon possessed. And yet that's what they're accusing him of being. You have a demon, you're possessed by a demon. What a grave accusation. When in fact the complete opposite is true. Here, here is somebody who is the, a paragon of purity, and they are accusing him of the worst impurity imaginable. He, he, is the, he is virtue incarnate, and they are accusing him of a condition of the worst vice possible. He is goodness, and they are accusing him of being indwelt by wickedness. He is the light which having, which being light has come into the world and given light to all men, and they are accusing the one who is the light of God of being indwelt by the prince of darkness. The one who is the truth of being indwelt by a spirit of falsehood and wickedness and the father of lies. That is an unimaginable accusation. It's not the only accusation that was ever raised against Jesus. There are others. In Mark chapter 3, his family members and those who gathered around him, they thought he was insane. They said he's out of his mind. He's lost his marbles. He has finally gone over the edge in his claims to be deity. And they wanted to seize him and take him away from the crowds because the crowds were gathering around. They said, he has lost it. Charged him with insanity. In John, excuse me, in John chapter eight, they charged him with being the product of an illegitimate fornication between Mary and and whoever Mary fornicated with before she was married. The reality of his virgin birth, the stories of his virgin birth circulated even during the days of Jesus. That wasn't something made up centuries later by the Catholic Church or whoever Dan Da Vinci Code says it was made up by. It was it was known in Jesus' day that that was the facts or that was the story surrounding his birth. And so they said in John chapter 8, verse 19, where is your father? He's talking about his father. Where is your father? That was the slight. Where's, where's your true father? Who's your true father? Later on in the same chapter, John chapter 8, they said, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. The implication being, you are the illegitimate product of a fornicating mother. An impure mother. They accused him of that. They accused him of being a gluttonous man, a drunkard, and, a, and somebody who lived with and dwelt with sinners. A sinner. Those are all horrible accusations. Then in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees, when they saw some of the miracles that Jesus did, said he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. That was something that started to sort of circulate even before the infamous blasphemy of the Holy Spirit episode later on, when they could not explain his miracles. They said in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees heard this, they said this man cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And the Mark chapter 3 describes the same accusations. Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. That was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To be confronted with the incarnate Son of God, and to see His miracles, and to know there is no other explanation than that He does these miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, by God, He is sent from God. As Nicodemus said, nobody can do these works unless He comes from God. They knew that, they saw that, they recognized it, they knew it up here. And they said... It is the power of Satan that does it. That was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing the miracles of Jesus, when they knew better, to the power of Satan. And they accused him of being demon possessed later on in John chapter eight. In fact, I want you to just turn over there, maybe a page or two for you. John chapter eight. Look at verse forty-eight. After Jesus says in verse 47, He who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to Him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now that was the worst. Listen, to the mind of a Jew, there was only one thing worse than being demon-possessed. It was to be a demon-possessed Samaritan. That was the only thing worse than being demon-possessed. They hated Samaritans. Those half-breeds up north, those compromisers, those idol-worshippers who worship in the wrong place with a different priesthood. They they call themselves Jews, but they're really half-Jews. The Jews hated Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated Jews. There's only one thing worse than being demon-possessed, and that was to be a demon-possessed Samaritan. And so they said in verse 48, The Jews answered and said to him, We rightly say you have a demon, and you are a Samaritan. You are a Samaritan who is possessed by a demon. That was the worst thing that could roll off the tongue of any Jew. There was no lower, slanderous statement than that one that you read in verse 48. Jesus answered, verse 49, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and if the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And we know you have a demon. Look over at John chapter 10, verse 20. It's after the... After the Good Shepherd discourse of John chapter 10, verse 19, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? See that? So two more times in the Gospel of John, we get this same accusation. That seems to be a favorite among them. He has a demon, he is demon-possessed, and he's insane. Slanderous. Horribly slanderous. Now what do you and I learn from this? What do we learn from this? Two things. First, When somebody says something slanderous or accusatory or wrong about us, when somebody name calls, we obviously know that it hurts. But listen, you and I can take comfort in the fact that we are in good company because they said even worse things about Jesus. There is nothing that could ever be said about you or I that is further from the truth than that which they said about Jesus was from the truth. Nothing. No no slander, no, no name, no false accusation that has ever come against you in any form is as bad or blasphemous or horrific as that which was labeled against Jesus. So he understands that. He knows that. It was true of him. And I would say to you that anybody who desires to follow in his steps and walk in the truth and in the life, in the light will receive like accusations and slanderous reports against them. You ought to expect it. If you've never been slandered before, you should expect it soon. Come see me afterwards. I'll start it for you. You need to learn to expect it because it's going to come your way. The second thing we can learn, and this we learn from Jesus' response to it. Look at verse, well, we're back in chapter 7 now. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and we're going to get into this next week. I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Do you notice his response to it? What does he do? Nothing. He doesn't mention it. He doesn't answer it. He doesn't counter it. He doesn't point out that it's false. He doesn't do anything. What is he doing? Why doesn't he answer that? Such a horrible, slanderous accusation. Why does Jesus not deal with that and get into an argument with them over the issue of whether or not he is demon-possessed? These people have, have leveled the most slanderous accusation possible against his character, his motives, his nature. And yet, what does Jesus do? right over top of it to the real issue. What was the real issue? You have violated the law and you are trying to condemn me and you have failed to keep the law of Moses and here are the reasons why you hate me and here is why it is unjust and here is why I did what it is and here is why you are hypocrites and here is why you judge according to shallow judgment. It doesn't even deal with the accusations. That, I think, is divine wisdom. That is divine wisdom. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Now, is that a hard and fast rule? No, because the very next Proverb, 26, verse 25, or verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, as his folly deserves, that he will not be wise in his own eyes. Don't answer a fool and answer a fool. Which do you do? It takes wisdom, right? There are times when you must answer a fool according to his folly. You have to answer him. You have to give an answer for what he has said, because what he has said is foolish and destructive and harmful. And there are times when, look, the folly of a fool just shouldn't be answered. There are times when you receive a letter in the mail, you crinkle it up and you throw it in the garbage can and you just blow it off. There are times when what is said against somebody is so outrageous, so illegitimate, so wrong, so patently, obviously wrong, it doesn't need any good to even answer. Because to even answer it is to, is to lend legitimacy to the folly of a foolish mouth and the mouth of a fool. That is what I think is happening here in John 7. The, anybody who approached this situation with even a modicum of judgment, discernment, intelligence, and common sense could see that Jesus of Nazareth was not demon-possessed. Anybody could see that. The accusation is so preposterous, he doesn't even deal with it. He just passes right over it and gets right to the issue. There are times when you answer a fool. There are times when you do not answer a fool. There are times when something said against you is so outlandish, so preposterous, so baloney, that you just walk right past it just ignore it. And that's exactly what Jesus did and gets right to the heart of the issue, which was their desire to kill him. Now, there's more, obviously, in Jesus' response that we have to unpack other than the fact that he just simply ignores their slanderous accusation. And we will get to that verses 21 through 24 next week. We'll unpack that together. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we we thank you for your word and its clarity and the truth that is here exp- expressed for us. We are, are grateful that in all that we have been tempted with and in all that we have suffered at the hands of other men, there is nothing in our lives that can compare to what Your Son did, not only in His active obedience and the accusations that were hurled against Him, but the passive obedience of suffering on the cross for our sins. And so we are thankful that in Your providence and by Your grace You have given us wisdom to know when to respond and when not to respond. We thank You, Father, that we are not alone and that these things which are common to all men are not beyond our ability to bear. Thank you for Christ and his example. Thank you for a perfect Savior who was the paragon of virtue, who was a paragon of purity, who was holy in every way, and so could offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. We praise you in his gracious and precious name. What a a wonderful Redeemer is ours. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.